You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Please turn now to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We're in the last part of this chapter. We're going to read together verses 31 through verse 42. John 19. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him, But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we quiet our hearts now before your word, and we have expressed to you the sentiments and the praise and the adoration of our hearts through song and through our prayers and through our meditation upon the words that we have sung. And it is our desire now that we might hear you speak to us through your word. We desire... No other revelation. We look for no other revelation and expect nothing in that regard. For your word is sufficient. It is enough for us. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to it and that we would see in your word what you have for us this morning. Bless this time with the presence of your spirit to be our teacher and our guide in these things. You would help us to understand spiritual things with spiritual minds. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. It is no exaggeration to say that the life that Jesus lived was a life like no other man had ever lived. And so consequently, the death that he died was a death like no other man had ever died. It was unique in a number of different ways. The death of Christ was unique, uh, first of all, because of the supernatural events that attended his death. A lot of supernatural phenomena at the time of his death, including uh, the three hours of darkness and the ripping of the, the veil in the temple from top to bottom and the earthquake and the opening of the tombs. All of those things accompanied the death of Christ. Matthew chapter 27, verse 54 says, Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were things that that the soldiers saw that accompanied the death of Christ that made them realize this is unique. Nothing like this has ever happened. These things normally do not accompany a crucifixion victim. And then there was the demeanor with which our Lord died. He died in such a way as to uh, pray for the forgiveness of his enemies and the very ones who were murdering him. He died as one with words of forgiveness and grace upon his lips. Uh, He died like a king in all of his majesty might die, so much so that the penitent thief 
requested permission to be with him in paradise that very day. And Jesus granted access to paradise to that repentant thief. There was an element of sovereignty in the way that Jesus died. He didn't die as one who was waiting for death to seize upon him, but he died in a manner that that, uh, was characteristic of one who himself willingly and in his own terms and in his own time gave up his life willingly, laid it down at the time of his choosing and the means and the manner of his choosing. So there's an element of sovereignty there. When he breathed his last and he said, uh, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he willingly gave up his spirit at the time of his own choosing. And that was very unique as well. And then there were all the scriptures that were fulfilled in the way that this man died. And that is probably the most striking of all of the aspects of the, of the death of Christ was the number of scriptures that were fulfilled. And any Jew who is familiar with his Old Testament and familiar with the life of David and familiar with the prophets and the, and the, uh, the things predicted about the Messiah and his first coming had to have observed the manner in which Jesus of Nazareth died and had to have said to themselves, there are a myriad of scriptures that are being fulfilled and a myriad of prophecies that are being uh, fulfilled in the death of this man. And we've seen some of those as we've, as we've gone through this. Even his betrayal by a friend for 30 pieces of silver fulfills scripture. Uh, being arrested, and when he was arrested, the disciples fleeing, that was a fulfillment of Scripture. His scourging was a fulfillment of Scripture. Being crucified between two thieves, being pierced in his hands and his feet, his bones being out of joint, uh, being pierced in the side, the soldiers gambling for his garments. Uh, all of that, all of those elements fulfilled Scripture. And so any Old Testament Jew familiar with their Old Testament and loving it like they did, had to have watched this and said, truly no other man lived like this and no other man died like this. And everything that they saw being played out in front of them, uh, wittingly or unwittingly by those who were involved, obviously fulfilled Scripture in the minutest of details. So no man lived like him, and no man died like him. And today we're looking at other fulfilled Scriptures uh, in the death of Christ, but these things took place after he was already dead. So nobody could say that Jesus was trying to fulfill Scripture in the way that he died, and that's the only reason, because he was acting it out that was disingenuous. Nobody could make that charge, because even after he was dead, There are certain things that were done to him over which, humanly speaking, he had no control after he was dead. And even those very things fulfilled Scripture and two of them. And that's the passage that we're looking at today. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through verse 37 in John 19. 31 through 37. And so last week we looked at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, how some of those were fulfillments of Scripture. Some of those were quotations of Old Testament Scripture. And then today we are looking at what happened to him after he died that also fulfills Scripture. Next week we're going to look at the burial of the body of Jesus. And that will finish up chapter 19. And then the following week is Resurrection Sunday. And we'll be talking about the resurrection beginning in John chapter 20. It's almost as if I planned it that way, isn't it? In fact, I did plan it that way. I had originally scheduled to have Cornell preach for me today. But last Sunday, and I don't know what I was thinking in my head, the the calendar wasn't working out last uh, Monday morning it was. I, I woke up and started reading through John 19 thinking Cornell was going to preach today and then I would have next week, but there's no way I could get all the way through the end of the chapter 19 by in one Sunday. So I called Cornell and I said, uh, you're off. You're free. You don't have to do that. I'm, I'm going to go ahead. I need two more weeks. And so that's the way we're pacing it out. We're going to be looking at the resurrection of the Lord on uh, Resurrection Sunday beginning in John chapter 20. All right, so let's look at, first of all, the the confirmation of his death. These events took place after Jesus was died. He had given up his spirit, beginning in verse 31. Now, before we, before we start verse 31, let me give you a, a couple of details here. Verse 31 through 37 are, is a passage of Scripture that is unique only to John. There are things here that John records that none of the other synoptics record. And as we've worked our way through these chapters, chapter 18 and 19, we've tried to parallel some of the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, some of the details that they give. When we get to verse 31... 
there's nothing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that parallels what we are reading here. These elements, these details are given to us by an eyewitness. The man whom he claims to be an eyewitness in verse 35, these are given to us by an eyewitness and they have an eyewitness flavor to them. These are details that struck the senses of John as he was watching this. And so John records this and none of the other gospel writers do. And then second, a note about a little bit of the timeline. Several weeks ago, we mentioned that Jesus was crucified or the crucifixion would have taken place somewhere between the third hour of the day and the sixth hour of the day, meaning mid-morning, somewhere between 9 o'clock in the morning and 12 o'clock. That is as accurate as we can get, given the ways in which they kept time in the ancient world and the ways that they made notations of time. So from mid-morning until about the ninth hour is when Matthew chapter 27 says that Jesus finally died. So that would be about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So we're talking about something in the neighborhood of four at the very shortest and six or seven hours at the very longest of Jesus hanging on the cross. So by the time we get to verse 30 where Jesus prays and gives up his spirit and dies there quite willingly on the cross, it's about three o'clock in the afternoon, about the ninth hour. All right. So now the confirmation, the thing, the signs that give us confirmation of Jesus's death. Look at it in verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, these are things that are going on between the Jewish leaders and Pilate. And so when John says it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath, he means the day prior to the Sabbath. So this would have been, if the Sabbath is Saturday, this would have been Friday. And again, the day of preparation is not the day of preparation for the Passover, which would have made it Thursday. It is the day of preparation for the Sabbath, which would have made it on a Friday. And so this is actually Passover day. And this is the day when the Jews would be not only celebrating the Passover by sacrificing the lambs in the temple and getting ready to eat the meal that evening, many of them. Some of them had eaten it the previous evening. But they would be uh, then making great preparation for the, for the celebration of that next Sabbath, which was not just an ordinary Sabbath, but what they would call a high Sabbath or a high day. It was an extra special Sabbath because it was the Sabbath of Passover week. And so the Jews were concerned that according to their scriptures that the land would be defiled if there was a dead body exposed to the elements overnight and especially going on to a Sabbath day. And this came from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 22 and 23, which says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So that's what they were thinking of. If they left a a corpse hanging on a tree overnight, it would defile the land. And the last thing that they wanted was for the land to be defiled during Passover and then for the land to be defiled during Passover and even the observance of the Sabbath. And so the Jews were very scrupulous about keeping details of the law like this. And it was not uncommon for the Jews to request that that victims or execution victims be taken out of sight and buried before sunset. They didn't want the bodies exposed overnight because they believed that, that would defile their land. And truly, it would, according to, uh, according to Deuteronomy and the, uh, the requirements of the, of the law. And so they went to Pilate, and Pilate was the only one who could authorize this. They went to Pilate and asked that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. And they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So what they were asking for is a hurrying up of the, of the execution that they would speed up the death of these crucifixion victims because they wanted them dead and taken off of the crosses and their bodies disposed of either in a common grave, which is what they did with common criminals like the two hanging beside Jesus, or that somebody else would take the body like Joseph of Arimathea requested 
and put it into a tomb before the sunset and before the Sabbath began. So that was the desire of the Jews. And they went to Pilate and asked permission or asked that this be sped up so that they could get this taken care of before the sun would set. And Pilate didn't have to do this. He didn't have to authorize it. He could have thrown it right back in the Jews' face and said, uh, no, we're going to leave them up all night and all weekend and however long it takes until I prove my point. Pilate could have said that, but he didn't. He conceded, and the Jews got what they asked for. And so the Roman soldiers were authorized to come and to break the legs of the victims. Now, here's what they would do. Well, I'm not going to tell you exactly what they would do because they're very gruesome, but here's why they would do it. Crucifixion, this is their way of hastening the death of crucifixion victims. And as I said some weeks ago, crucifixion was intended to take as long as possible. The Roman soldiers' desire was that they would extend the death of the victim out as long as they possibly could and extract the most amount of suffering. So even when they hastened the death of a crucifixion victim, they hastened the death in such a way as to extract an extra degree of physical suffering. And so they would break the legs of crucifixion victims, and this would hasten death in two ways. Number one, it would make it quicker because of the added trauma of having their legs smashed in the fashion that they did. And second, it would contribute to an extra blood loss, which would quicken the death of the victim. But what they would die from is not necessarily trauma and the blood loss. Those, those were contributing factors. But from asphyxiation. Because crucifixion victims that hung on the cross with their arms outstretched like they did and nailed in that position uh, on their hands and their feet, the only way that they could breathe, because this would constrict the chest, the only way they could breathe was to pull or push themselves up on their wounds in order to take a breath. And once the legs were bro- broken, that would mean that the only way that they could really take a breath was to pull themselves up on their on their wounds. And so they would slowly suffocate and die. And, of course, the added trauma of having your leg smashed contributed to all of that. So it was very nasty. I mean, even in... Even in the act of mercy, it was a painful act of mercy. Especially given that the Roman soldiers could have just thrust a spear into the side of each one of the crucifixion victims, and that would have that would have ended it in a matter of seconds. But they didn't do that. Even in speeding it up, they made it long and agonizing. It's just, it's a quick, slow thing, or slow, quick thing, and even that added up to the pain of the crucifixion victims. So it was just it was horrible what they were asking to have done. And Pilate Pilate agreed to that, gave orders for the cruci- for the soldiers to break the legs, and then they came to Jesus and saw that Jesus was already dead. So they came, they did the other two criminals, and uh, and then by the time they got to Jesus, they noted that Jesus was already dead, so they treated him differently. <clears throat> Instead, they took a spear and they thrust it into his side, which would have pierced his lungs and his heart. Uh, the reason that they treated him differently was because they noticed that he was already dead. Now, this is important, it's significant to note this, that the Roman soldiers were experts in death, they were expert executioners, they knew what a dead body looked like, They knew what a living body looked like. They knew what a living suffering body looked like. They knew what a living person in the last gasps of a dying process on a cross would look like. These men probably had crucified hundreds, if not thousands of people. They were experts in death and experts in execution. They knew what a dead body looked like. Their assessment, their professional assessment, when they got to the cross of Christ was that he was dead. Now, why do I emphasize that and why is this significant? Because there are theories about the resurrection narratives and what happened to the body after Jesus was buried that require the belief that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he swooned on the cross or he passed out, he lost consciousness. And this tricked the Roman soldiers. They took the body off and they put him in a tomb and eventually he resuscitated in the tomb and kind of woke up, rolled the stone away and went out and presented himself alive to the disciples. That's called, called the swoon theory. And that's one of the ways that people try and explain the details of the gospel accounts by suggesting that Jesus really didn't die. Well, there were four professional executioners who all gave their confirmation that Jesus was dead, which is why they didn't break the legs. 
And instead, they thrust a spear into his side. Now, why a spear and why thrust it into his side? Why didn't they, in order, if, they, if the goal was to assure death, why didn't they break his legs like they broke the legs of the other two? We don't know that. It's something I've been thinking about all week long. Why did they treat him differently? What was it? Somebody suggested, one of the commentators suggested, that maybe these Roman soldiers felt pity on all of the women and John who were watching this happen to Jesus. And because they felt pity for those who were observing them, they didn't want to further desecrate or, or mangle the body and, and that this was sort of an, a way of ensuring death without being overly brutal. I don't really think that the Roman soldiers were concerned about those who were watching or concerned about anything like that. Why did they treat the body of Jesus different? Why did they not break the legs if they wanted to ensure death? They could have. But ultimately, the reason they did it this way is because Scripture said that no bone of his should be broken. That's ultimately what it was. Whatever their, whatever their reason for thrusting the spear into his side, was it to be extra gory? Uh, was it to make sure that he was absolutely dead? Was it a, a, a show or something that they did for fun? Whatever it was, they decided not to break the legs and instead thrust the spear into his side. They would have pushed the spear between two of his ribs. It would have punctured his heart and his lung. And that would have ensured that uh, Jesus would have expired, uh, ensured that Jesus was dead. And that there's no way that even if he were faking it, even if it, if it were swooning, there's no way he could survive that. So they did that. And look at what John notes. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other two who were crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Blood and water came out. Now that's one of those details that kind of has an eyewitness ring to it. It's something that John saw and he immediately in verse 35 says, I know what I have seen and I'm testifying to you that it is true. I was there and I watched this and I'm telling you this so that you would believe. But what is the blood and the water? What caused that? What was it? You'll notice that John doesn't give any details about it. He doesn't give any kind of interpretation. He doesn't say the blood and the water symbolize this and this. He doesn't say that it was a picture of this and the other thing. In fact, he doesn't give any sort of theological significance attached to it at all. He just sort of reports it and, and leaves it there for us to observe and to meditate upon. So ultimately, I have no idea what was in John's mind when he notes that the blood and the water flew out or flowed out. Maybe... It's just an observation of what he saw. Maybe that's all that he intended by it. Or maybe there's something more significant to it. So let me give you a couple of ideas that have been suggested about what the blood and the water meant. I'll start with some fanciful ones. Because we all like the fanciful interpretations, right? Now, by the way, one of the marks of a good Bible student, a good Bible reader, and a good Bible teacher is not the amount of imagination that they can use in applying the text and coming up with very creative things. It is the amount or the degree to which they are constrained by the text. Not allowing their imagination to run wild, but constrained by the text. And there are Bible interpreters throughout church history who have run off in all kinds of fanciful directions with the blood and the water, and I'm going to give you some of those. Some have suggested that what is being pictured here or portrayed here are the two ordinances given to the church, communion and baptism. Now, how many of you honestly would have thought to yourself when you first read this, Oh, that's communion and baptism that's being spoken of there. Nobody here? Good. Perfect. Because it's not communion and baptism. Now, obviously, the blood would symbolize the communion, right? When we break the, break the bread and we drink the juice, we are symbolically representing the body that was broken and the blood that was shed to atone for our sins. And so some people say here that the blood that is being spilled out was in order to picture communion. And the water, obviously, for baptism. Some have suggested that what's being addressed here with the blood and the water are two elements of our salvation. 
justification and sanctification. Justification being that act whereby God declares us righteous in his sight because of what Christ has done. We are redeemed. Our sins are forgiven. They're blotted out and wiped away because of what? Because of the blood of Christ. Because his blood has been shed. It is provided in atonement. So we have forgiveness of sins and we are justified in his sight. So the blood pictures justification. Sanctification is the process whereby we are made continually more holy. We are changed from being impure to pure. We are cleansed and we are we are we are purified as we live our lives over the course of our of time. And so the water here is obviously a picture of sanctification. Now, you can tell that either one of these little theories here would make for a great sermon, right? You could go off into what justification is and sanctification and how water and blood do this. But I'm not sure that that's what John had in mind. Another fanciful idea that's been presented is that just as Jesus, sorry, just as Adam gave birth to his wife Eve out of his side from one of his ribs, God created Adam from the dust of the ground. God created Eve out of one of Adam's ribs. So just as the first Adam gave birth to Eve out of his side, so the Lord Jesus Christ gave birth to his bride, the church, out of his side. And that that blood and that water is symbolic of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ who was birthed out of the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. See the parallelism there? I'm sure it was obvious to all of you as well. Now, those are all fanciful interpretations of it. Some people see, now we're getting closer to reality here, and this is how I've always taken it, and I think this is how I still take it. So I shouldn't say I'm closer to reality. Uh, this is reality, since I'm going I'm to camp on this one. Some people say that this is merely a description of what physically happened, and it is indicative of, of something significant regarding Jesus' suffering. That what really happened when the, when the Roman soldier thrust the spear into his side is that the point of the spear pierced the lung and what's called the pericardium, and the heart. The pericardium is a sac that is around our heart that under stress and, uh, and tension and, and um, the type of suffering that would be characteristic of crucifixion, that heart, bag around the heart, would begin to fill with, with fluid because the heart is under such duress as it is trying to pump and the body is trying to stay alive that what that pericardium does is it sort of lubricates between the heart and the lungs so that there's not rubbing friction and creating a callus between the heart and the lungs. So that pericardium is there to kind of to ease that friction. And when the heart is under duress and under a long period of suffering, physical suffering like this, the pericardium fills up with fluid because the heart is beating hard and it is uh, lurching, as it were. And so that this piercing of the spear would have pierced the pericardium and the heart. So blood would have come out and that would have been followed by the draining of the pericardium out through that same exit wound. That's John Calvin's position. That has how I've always understood what is here with the blood and the water, that this was simply a, a, a confirmation that Jesus was not only dead, but that he had suffered greatly, and that in the piercing of his side, his heart and his pericardium were both ruptured. That means that he was dead, dead. Not swooning, not, not fainting, dead, dead. Nobody could survive the piercing of a pericardium. Some people see that this is, uh, have suggested that this is actually a miracle that accompanied the death on the cross. In other words, what came out was, in a supernatural way, not just blood that flowed out, but a supernatural flowing of water. Like when Moses struck the rock in the wilderness and water came out of the rock, so they say, when the Lord Jesus was pierced in his side, there was something supernatural and miraculous that happened. There was an, an enormous amount of water that came out of that side, like water from the rock in the wilderness. And the point of observing that or suggesting that is, of course, that Jesus Christ is that rock who is struck for us, he is the one who provides water, and so this was a miraculous way of attesting to that reality. 
And that has some merit going for it in that in that there are other supernatural events that accompany the crucifixion, which we mentioned earlier, right? Like the tearing of the temple veil from top to bottom and the earthquake and the opening of the tombs and, and all of the, the, the three hours of darkness. There were other supernatural phenomena that accompanied this death. And so some have suggested that this is, uh, this is like a fountain of water that came pouring out. And it was testimony to everybody that this is the one of whom the Old Testament prophets spoke. This is, Christ is our rock in the wilderness. And that's possible, and there are many good Bible scholars that suggest that. But ultimately, again, we, we can only speculate because John doesn't tell us how much blood and how much water or whether it was supernatural or not. He's just telling us what he observed. So then the question becomes, what should we make of the blood and the water? What actually are these things? And is there any kind of symbolism to them? Is there any kind of a significance to these two things? Once again, I would say to you that the mark of a good Bible student, like you should be, and a good Bible listener, like we all are, is not the degree to which we can run wild with our imagination, but the degree to which we are, what? Constrained by the text. So then we have to ask the question, does John use blood in a theologically significant way in this gospel? And does John use water in a theologically significant way in this gospel? And the answer to both of those questions is yes. He makes reference to blood and to water in theologically significant ways that I think kind of come to a head here at this point when he observes that out of the sight of Christ came both blood and water. Turn back to John chapter 6. We will look at the only significant theological reference in John to blood. John chapter 6. This happens on the heels or as part of the bread of life discourse. When Jesus is giving a discourse in order to distinguish between true believers and fake believers. In John chapter 6, beginning at verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, when we looked at this, we saw this was not describing mass, the Roman Catholic idea of mass. This is not describing communion. Jesus is not speaking of cannibalism in this passage. What Jesus is doing is using an analogy or a metaphor for the appropriation of true salvation. His flesh, which is broken, his blood, which is shed. The one who has believed upon him is the one who has embraced all of that and is not offended by the bloodiness of the cross or the the sacrifice on the cross, but one who has taken those elements to himself in the sense of really, truly believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the the analogy of eating and drinking here is, is basically the appropriation of these elements. So what is it that the blood provides? Satisfaction from thirst. What type of thirst? In the context, the hungering and the thirsting is hungering and thirsting after forgiveness and salvation and righteousness. And the one who takes Christ to himself in all that that means is one whose hunger and thirst has been satisfied. Who's one who's, is one whose desire and need for salvation has been met. And so they have life and they live evermore because they have eaten the flesh of the Son of Man and drank his blood. Not in a literal sense. It's not intended to be, uh, it's not intended to be, to endorse cannibalism, but it is the idea of appropriating salvation to oneself. So there's theological significance here in John 6. What is it that the blood provides? It provides eternal life. Now look back to John chapter 4. 
Is there a way that John uses water in a theologically significant way? This is the woman at the well. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob and are you who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. There's the promise again, right? The water meets our spiritual, our spiritual need, our spiritual thirst. That the one who has, has drank of the water that Christ provides is one who has had their need for, for eternal life and their need for forgiveness and redemption met, met. And their thirst has been quenched. And so then in John chapter 6, when, John, when Jesus speaks of drinking his blood, again, this is a reference to the satisfying nature of what his blood has provided for us. Now turn to John chapter 7. One last one, and then we'll be back to John chapter 19. John chapter 7, verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who were to believe in him, who believed in him, were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, technically, the water or the living water that is here being spoken of is the Holy Spirit. But it cannot be separated from the idea of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Because he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and you will drink from me and have that thirst satisfied and quenched. So, back to John chapter 19. Does John use the idea of blood and water in theologically significant ways. He does. What does it, how does John use them? To picture or to illustrate what the death of Christ has provided for us, what Christ has promised for his people, and what Christ has provided for his people. How has he provided living water? How has he provided the eternal life that we must eat and drink? Through his death on the cross. So I think that when John saw the blood and the water flow out, he saw here the culmination and the picture of all that Jesus had said during his life and ministry. And John must have thought to himself, blood and water, quenching for my thirst. This is what gives me eternal life. And I think that that is the significance that John has in mind. So that's how we are constrained by the text. We don't need to get off into fanciful things about allegories and pictures and symbols and try and draw connections that aren't there. How does John picture blood and water? As that which Christ has provided, as that which brings us eternal life and salvation. That's the blood of the water. How is the eternal life that Christ has promised for 19 chapters, how is that given to us? Through his death on the cross. And that's where blood and water flowed out. Don't miss the fact that Jesus just a few moments before this said, I thirst. Right? We saw the irony of that. That the one who has provided living water was thirsty upon the cross. And he said, I thirst. And moments later, blood and water flowed from his side. There is, I think there is picture and symbolism there, but I think it is exactly what John says it ought to be in, in the passages there. Now, there is one other possible connection, and this is to an Old Testament text, and a lot of good Bible scholars see this, and I would suggest this to you is, is very possible. It's possible that the blood and the water is flowing from his side is a picture of a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. And here's what that says. Zechariah 13, verse 1 says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. A fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin 
and for impurity. And many people see that this piercing of the side of Christ and the blood and water that flowed out of that was intended to be a picture of or a reminder of that prophecy from Zechariah. That there would come a day when a fountain for sin and for impurity would be opened up for the house of David. What is it that cleanses us from sin and provides for us purity and deals with our impurity? It's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's not the blood of calves or lambs. It's none of those things. What has provided that for us is the blood of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. And Zechariah was pointing forward to a time when this fountain would be opened up. All of this providing for sin and for impurity would be provided through someone or something. And there would be this fountain. So Zechariah, I think, uses the term fountain in the sense of looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and the abundance of what he provided for sin and for impurity. So I think that there is a possible illusion there. Now let's look at the fulfillment of Scripture and how this fulfills Scripture, beginning in verse 35. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. It is almost as if John stops here before he quotes the Scripture references that were fulfilled by these actions. And he says, I want you to understand that I was there and I testified of this, and I know that the testimony that I am giving is true and that what I am speaking is truth. John reminds us of that, and this is his little indication that he was an observer of this and an eyewitness of these events. Why would John feel the need to remind us, I have seen this with my own eyes, and I know that what I'm saying is true, and I'm testifying to you what is true, and I am not adding or embellishing one whit to it? Why would John feel the need to do that? Because if you were an Old Testament Jew and you were reading this account, you would be thinking Psalm 2215, Psalm 2218, Isaiah 53.9, Isaiah 53.12, Isaiah 53.13. Wow, this is incredible. All of these things are being fulfilled. John, are you, are you certain that you're not embellishing just a little bit? Right? There, would, there comes a point when the evidence of what has been predicted and then fulfilled right before your eyes is so overwhelming that you have to stop back and say, what I am telling you is the truth. I'm not embellishing this at all. I know that what, what I saw with my own eyes, this may seem unbelievable, but all of these things happen to fulfill Scripture. And then he quotes two Scriptures that were fulfilled by these events that happened after Jesus died. Verse 36 is one Scripture, and verse 37 is the other. Verse 36, For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. So the, the action of the soldiers in piercing the side rather than crushing the legs of Jesus actually ended up fulfilling Scripture. And all of these things happened so that Scripture might be fulfilled. Now, I want you to notice all of the things that had to come together for that one scripture to be fulfilled. You had to have the Jews suddenly be concerned about being pure and, and righteous and not defiling the land. These same, these same Jews that were concerned about not defiling the land thought nothing of defiling themselves. Right? The hypocrisy here is obvious. Uh, they were concerned about fulfilling the scrupulous details of the law while murdering the one who gave them the law. The irony there cannot be overstated. But in, in their concern for the scrupulous details of that law, they go to Pilate. Pilate had to agree that this would take place. Pilate had to give the order. The soldiers would have to desire to obey the order. They would break the legs of the other two, come to Jesus, and then decide not to break his legs. So you have Pilate and the Jews and the soldiers who are all what? Colluding together? Well, this is just how it actually happened. And all of these things and all of their independent uh, decisions that they would make would all serve to fulfill Scripture. And what is the Scripture that is being fulfilled? And you may say, I think we read this at the beginning of the, the service today, right? Psalm 34? You're right. That's one possibility. There's actually a couple other passages that uh, probably were in mind here as well. But one of them is Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verse 20, 20. 
says he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Now, in that context, in Psalm 34, David is describing God's protection of the righteous. Or we could say David is describing God's protection of the righteous one. And David uses poetic language that says that God will protect the righteous so that none of their bones have been, will be broken. Now, does that mean that a righteous person, a Christian, will never suffer a broken bone? That's not what it means. But what David is saying is, this is the degree to which God is concerned for his people and the degree to which God can and does protect his people. If God so wills that not one of your bones will be broken, then not one of your bones will be broken. Right? If God so wills that you're going to die today, you're going to die today. If God so wills that you not die today, what are your chances of not dying today? Very good that you're not going to die today, right? Just last Sunday, we had the pastor who was shot down in Coeur d'Alene. An amazing story, is it not? And I was having a conversation with somebody this last week, and I said, it's amazing that that guy didn't die. Six forty-five caliber hollow-point shells to his back, and he didn't die. And I said to them, look, if it's your time to go, you're going to step off a curb and hit your head, and you're going to be gone. But if it's not your time to go, six hollow-point bullets to your back, it's not going to take you out of this world. There's nothing that can take you out of this world. What is the degree to which God protects and watches over and keeps his people? So much so that he can make sure that not even one of your bones will be broken, if that's what he wills. And that's what David is describing. Well, in that phrasing, in that wording, David seems to be alluding to somebody future who David has more than just himself and God's people in general in mind, but actually the righteous one in mind. So David writes in Psalm 34, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And in that context, David describes God keeping the righteous so that their bones not be broken. That seems to be what John is quoting. But there is another allusion that is even more powerful, and it has to do with the Passover lamb and details given concerning the Passover lamb and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And I think that this is probably more likely what John has in mind. He may have all three of these references in mind. But at the very moment when Jesus was dying here on the cross and the soldiers were thrusting the spear into his side, you know what was going on inside the city of Jerusalem, inside the temple? The Passover lambs were being sacrificed. That was part of the ritual that had gone on all that day. This was Passover. So outside the city of Jerusalem, God's Passover lamb for his people is hung on a cross and not one of his bones is broken. And inside the city of Jerusalem, the Passover lambs are being sacrificed for Passover. Now, the Old Testament gives all kinds of details about how that sacrifice was to be done and how the lamb was to be handled. They had to have a lamb that was without blemish and spotless and one that was pure and it was not diseased and it wasn't sick and it wasn't limping and on death's door. It couldn't be black or spotted or deformed or anything like that. It had to be a perfect lamb in order to be sacrificed. And they would bring the lamb to the priest and the priest would examine the lamb and declare it worthy of being sacrificed. Just as Jesus was brought before the priest and they examined him, right? And Pilate gave the pronunciation, he is innocent. He's an innocent man. He's done nothing worthy of death. Same type of examination. And then when the lamb was sacrificed, here's what Moses said in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. It, meaning the Passover lamb, it is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statutes of the Passover, they shall observe it. So as part of sacrificing the Passover lamb, for the Passover, that family, even in eating the animal, was not to break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. I think that's what John is really alluding to. Not just God's protection of his righteous one in ensuring that not a bone of his shall be broken. But John is pointing us to the Passover lamb who hung outside the city, who is being sacrificed for us. And scripture says that he is our Passover. He was sacrificed in our place. He is our Passover lamb. 
And because we are under his blood, we are safe from the death angel. We are safe from the wrath of God. There's parallelism there. And as the Passover lamb or us, God would ensure that not one of his bones would be broken, just like the Old Testament lambs. The second fulfillment of scriptures in verse 37. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, that one is very clear. We're not to guess as to which one of the three it is. There's only one passage from the Old Testament that describes this, and it's in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where Zechariah writes this, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like a bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now that prophecy in Zechariah 12 looks forward to something that is yet future for us, Namely, the salvation of the nation of Israel. Because there is, will come a time when Israel will look upon the Messiah, whom they have pierced. And there will be massive mourning over him as one mourns for an only son. And Zechariah, God says through Zechariah, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now, when was God pierced? You know how those who deny the deity of Christ explain that? They say that God's heart was pierced because of the sin of his people. Well, more than his heart was pierced, God's very body was pierced when he died on the cross. They will look on me, God says, whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for me or for him as one mourns for an only son. So Zechariah is looking forward to a time when God, when the people of Israel will look upon their God whom they have pierced and they will mourn and they will cry out for grace. That's yet future to us. But that scripture is fulfilled not in that Israel has already looked upon that Messiah, but that that Messiah has to be pierced in order for the nation of Israel to look upon him. So that piercing of him was a fulfillment of Scripture that the Messiah would be pierced. And of course, they pierced not only his hands, but also his feet. His last chapters in Zechariah are filled with Messianic illusions and Messianic prophecies. I'll remind you of a couple of them. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, that's where we read the prophecy of the king coming into Jerusalem, riding on the foal of a donkey. In Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13, is the prophecy of God being valued at 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah 13, verse 1, that's where we read of a fountain being opened for sin and impurity. Probably a reference there to the, the death of Christ. Zechariah 13, verse 7, says that the shepherd would be uh, struck and the sheep would scatter, referring to the disciples scattering away from the Lord on the night that he was arrested and scourged. And so here we have, right in the middle of all of those prophecies, about being betrayed by 30 pieces for 30 pieces of silver, about the fountain being opened, about the disciples scattering, and about the uh, riding into the city of Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of a donkey, we have this prediction, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And that's what John is describing. So non-Christian, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, I would ask you this. How much more evidence do you possibly need in order to believe, as John says in verse 35, in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? God has more testimony as to what our need is, that we needed a sacrifice, that we needed blood to be shed. That's what all the Old Testament animal sacrifices were about. That's what Passover was about. That's what the feasts and the festivals were about. That's what the high priest came in and did every year on the Day of Atonement. And he would bring that blood back into the Holy of Holies and spread it out and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. That's what all of the Old Testament looked forward to is this great sacrifice. Because according to God, we need a sacrifice that covers our sins. And God has testified concerning that. And then God predicted what that sacrifice would look like. When it came time for the one who fulfilled the imagery of the the lambs and the oxen and the, the sheep and all that was sacrificed to atone for sins, when it came time for the one to come who would fulfill all of that and put all of that away and provide once and for all a final and full and complete and infinitely perfect sacrifice for sin, 
Something that bulls and lambs could not do. When that time came, God gave us all the details of what would unfold before us and what we would look for. We would look for one who was born of a virgin. We would look for one born in Bethlehem. We would look for one who would come to his people, who would be a light to the Gentiles, who would go about doing good, who would be a perfect servant of Yahweh. He would come and he would do all of that sinlessly and perfectly. And then he would die between among thieves. He would be buried with a rich man. He would be pierced. He would have his uh, garments gambled for. All of the things that have been fulfilled, he would shed his blood and a fountain would be open. He would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. His disciples would scatter. How many more fulfillments of hundreds of year old prophecy could one possibly need in order to be convinced the scripture is true and that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that he is the sacrifice for sin? There comes a point, and it was a point a lot a long time ago, when unbelief is simply irrational. Unbelief means that you are a fool. You're the worst of fools. Because you're denying what is so plain and so obvious. And to refuse to bow the knee to that and to deny that, there's just no excuse for that at all. Now to the Christian, here is our confidence and our joy. We look at this and we see Scripture fulfilled and it reminds us if God has fulfilled His Word up to this point, what will He do from this point forward? He will keep His Word. Every detail of what God said would happen at the first coming of His Son has been fulfilled just exactly as He said it would be. And every detail of what will happen at the second coming of His Son will be fulfilled in exactly the precise detail, exactly as He has revealed it to us. We can have confidence that having trusted in Him, He will fulfill His Word to keep us. We can have confidence that having trusted in Him, He will complete the work that He has begun in us. We have confidence that He will resurrect us and bring us to newness of life. We have confidence that He will recreate this world and make a new heavens and a new earth. And we have confidence that we will live with Him and we will dwell with Him and enjoy the pleasures and the delights of heaven and the presence of God for all of eternity. And we will do so in glorified bodies. All of that I know is going to happen with absolute certainty. Why? Because everything that God has said was going to come to pass up to this point has come to pass exactly as He said it. And we can have confidence that everything that He has said is going to come to pass will come to pass just exactly as He said it will come to pass. Why? Because God always keeps His Word. The fact that God keeps His Word is indescribably terrifying to an unbeliever because that means that God will do with you exactly what He has promised He is going to do with you unless you repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But to the Christian, the fact that God keeps His Word is of indescribable comfort and joy and encouragement. Why? Because I know that God is going to do with me exactly what He has promised to do with me because I have trusted in His Son. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the fact that You are a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. That Your Word is true. You have revealed before anything happens the things that will happen so that we might know and believe what You have revealed to us. Hundreds of years before our Lord was crucified, You revealed the details of that crucifixion and of His life, and of His birth, and of His ministry, of the resurrection even. And we are so grateful that You have done that so that we might believe. We are without excuse. Seeing what is before us, we are without excuse. We pray that if there are people here who have not bowed the knee and repented of their sin and trusted Christ for salvation, that You would draw them to Your Son, open their eyes, that they may see the light of the glory of the Gospel of Christ and believe. Cause them to believe and open their eyes to it so that they might have eternal life. Give them that trust in your Son, which only you can give, and be glorified in gathering your people to yourself. Encourage the hearts of those who are yours to trust in you and in your word, and to know that of all that you have promised, you will most certainly bring it all to pass. For you are a good God, and you keep your word. 
And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.